A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome to The Brief, a short, sharp snapshot of the region's policy landscape. My name is Edwina Landale, and this week we're taking a look at an industry that we all interact with day to day, the banking sector, which is currently under serious scrutiny in Australia. Finance is Australia's biggest industry, accounting for $146 billion of the country's annual economic activity. The Banking Royal Commission was established in December last year in response to long-standing allegations of banking misconduct in Australia, especially by the big four banks, Westpac, Commonwealth Bank, ANZ and NAB. Since the commission began, stories of greed and illegal behaviour have made headlines on a regular basis. And like seeing how a sausage is made, the inner workings of the country's financial sector have not been pretty. The list of offences is long, but the highlight reel includes the fees for no services scandal, where clients both dead and alive were charged fees for services they never received, tales of cash bribes being paid to brokers, and gambling addicts being offered ever-increasing credit limits. The Commission's interim report, which puts together all the evidence gathered so far, was released on the 28th of September. It identifies policy-related issues arising from the first four rounds of hearings. The Royal Commission has named it the Policy Round. The report poses a staggering 693 questions spread over three volumes, and its executive summary asks, why did it happen and what can be done to avoid it happening again? To help us sort through these questions, we are joined by Tracy Myler-Crane, Tracy is a lecturer at the ANU College of Law, where she focuses on regulation within the Australian financial system and corporate culture in the banking sector more generally. She sits on the Academic Committee of the Banking and Financial Services Law Association, and prior to joining ANU, worked in the legal practice for 12 years. Thank you for joining us today, Tracy. Thanks, Edwina. So I've given a broad overview of some of the major stories that have come out of the financial sector over the last few months. But how would you describe the state of Australia's banking sector? Uh, Good question. I would describe it as very poor. So what we're seeing in the Royal Commission is unsettling, it's unnerving, it's unsavoury, and on any view, it's unacceptable. I'm not quite sure, though, why we're so surprised with what's coming out of the Royal Commission. Since the GFC in 2008, we've seen more than 20 inquiries and reviews take place in relation to Australia's financial sector more broadly. And if I can just talk about that in two parts, one is profit and one is misconduct. So first of all, there's a lot being said about profit. Commissioner Hayne has used the term greed, I think, 50 times in his interim report. And there's no doubt that there's a focus on money by those in the banking sector. So on on one hand, we need to look at the banks as what they are, large corporate organisations. So there is a focus on money. There is a focus on quarterly reports. 
banks have a need, in fact, a desire to provide profits to their shareholders. Arguably, that's okay. Arguably, there is nothing wrong with banks wanting and needing to deliver profits for shareholders. There is, though, something fundamentally wrong with the level of misconduct and dishonesty that we're seeing uncovered in the Royal Commission. But again, I'm not quite sure why we're so surprised that this is all coming out. Since the GFC, in more than 20 inquiries and reviews, we have seen the issues of misconduct and dishonesty a number of times. Back in 2009, we saw the report delivered by the Inquiry into Financial Products and Services. Back then, almost 10 years ago, ASIC's enforcement standards were queried. There were concerns surrounding ASIC's enforcement standards. And it was flagged back then in 2009 that clients' interests really needed to be put before the interests of the financial planners who were providing the advice. That was back then. We then had the inquiry into the post-GFC banking sector in 2012. That uncovered some extraordinary behaviour by CBA and Bankwest following CBA's acquisition of Bankwest. The treatment of consumers that was outlined in that report could be described as nothing less than morally wrong and dishonest. So this is not new. Dishonest conduct, misconduct, it's not new. We saw the very important Murray report come from the financial system inquiry in 2014. That also identified the need for consumers to be treated fairly, uh, noting the lack of confidence and trust in the banking sector. That was a fundamental point. And the last one I wanted to mention to you was in 2016, we saw the inquiry into the impairment of customer loans. The banks were profiting unfairly from impaired loans, arguably loans that they had a hand in impairing. There was a need back then for customer protection. So all of these types of behaviour in this conduct has been presented to us numerous times over the past 10 years. So yes, we're seeing it now in the Royal Commission and it's unsavoury, but it's not new. So why haven't we seen changes in response to these many, many, many investigations and these seemingly already existing suggestions for improvements? I think that's a really great question and I wish I had the answer. I think the answer is quite complicated and I don't think there's one simple answer. I think it's a combination of factors. The most important that I'll get to last, actually, I think we have certainly an issue in relation to accountability of the regulator, accountability of ASIC, the effectiveness of ASIC. So it's twofold. ASIC does not seem to be held accountable to a sufficient level. Query, and some of there's been three separate inquiries and reviews into ASIC in the last 10 years, but query the effectiveness of ASIC and its tools and its powers. Does ASIC have sufficient power to deliver the much-needed specific and general deterrence to industry. ASIC's often been referred to as the toothless tiger, as a meek and timid regulator, and there was a very important inquiry, the ASIC enforcement review, where there were recommendations made to increase ASIC's powers. So it's a combination of ability and accountability. Secondly, uh, we have a lack of competition in the financial sector. That's very broad motherhood statement to make, but if we drill down, we have a too big to fail attitude with our big four banks. Um, We have limited competition in the sector, which means that over the last 10 years or more, the big four banks' market share has increased, which dovetails into the next issue, which is culture. So you ask the question, why hasn't anything changed? And we need to point to culture. We need to look at the organisational culture of the banking industry as a whole and the culture of the individuals and what drives individual behaviour. That's 
a topic we could talk about, I think, for hours on a separate podcast. I'm doing some work at the moment with Professor Sally Wheeler at the College of Law in relation to corporate culture in the banking sector and what drives individual behaviour. And there's no telling just yet what that's going to uncover. When we talk about culture, though, and the reasons why nothing's changed that you asked over the the last 10 years, I think it's important to remember that I don't think we've had this level of buy-in from the big four banks before. So you'll recall that the day the Treasurer announced the Royal Commission on the 30th of November last year was the day it received a letter signed by the chairpersons of each of the big four banks requesting a Royal Commission, uh, quoting the need to restore public faith to the sector. So the government, it's no secret, um, had resisted calls for a Royal Commission for some 18 months. And then momentarily after receiving a written request from the big four banks, it announced it was going to have a Royal Commission. So I think we have a level of buy-in from the big four banks this time that we haven't seen before. So that could be telling in the context of whether or not the Royal Commission and the final report to come from Commissioner Hayne in February next year whether that's actually going to be a meaningful report or whether it's going to simply just be another show trial and not much is going to change. You mentioned the sort of 18 months of lead up into the point where we actually had the announcement of the Royal Commission and a lot of people are concerned with the resistance of government to actually instigating a commission in this issue which has been called for for a very long time. So what do you think that says about the relationship between banks and government that government was so reluctant to investigate the finance sector? I don't think I can comment accurately or meaningfully on what it says about the relationship, but I think that if we just pause and remember that the banks, the big four banks, jointly signed a letter to the Treasurer asking for the Royal Commission and then the Treasurer called the Royal Commission, I think that says it enough. And you also, this is something that I found really interesting in what you mentioned about your research with Sally Wheeler. Uh, you're investigating the motivations for individual behaviour. Is that is that right? Yes, that's right. So, so, that's, a, sorry, so that's a question of individual as opposed to industry or institutional motivation. Is that what you think is important in these corporate cultures? Correct. Professor Wheeler, who's the Dean of the College of Law, has done a lot of work in the UK following the LIBOR scandal in 2012. And she has um, she has a number of publications and, and spent a lot of time exploring corporate cultures and individual behaviour. And we've connected such that I think that her work's completely transferable to what I'm doing here. And so we're collaborating on, on a project and, and working on that as we speak. What we're getting is that, yes, there's a lot of talk about greed about money, about people being driven and motivated by money. But our research suggests that what drives individual behaviour is not all about the money. So yes, money is a part of it, but it's not all about the money. There's much more to it than that. So we look at things like what what entices an individual to join the banking sector in the first place? What motivates an individual? Our research suggests that it's more than just money. It's competition. It's ego. It's the environment that, that they're in. We look at what causes a person's moral compass to become skewed. And clearly there's been, there's been a significant number of examples and case studies, both identified by the Royal Commission and outlined in a number of the inquiries and reviews that have taken place over the last 10 years, which suggest that moral compasses are either skewed or no longer exist. So we're looking at why that is so. So do you think that these sort of alternative motivations, like the 
competition that you mentioned, the ego, do you think that those could manifest in a healthy way? Do I think that we can change the culture in the banking sector? I like to think that we can. I'm the eternal optimist. I think it's going to take a lot of work and it's going to take buy-in from all of the players. It's going to take buy-in from the banks, the banking executives. It's going to take buy-in from top down and bottom up. It's going to take buy-in from the government. It's going to take buy-in from the regulator. So I, I don't like to be defeated and think that it's all too complicated to change. I think it can be changed. I'm not quite sure how. That's what we're working on. And we look forward to being able to publish on that going forward. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful. In a very sort of different vein to the individual motivation, it's been suggested that we need more fintech in the sector. So could you comment on whether or not that's a good idea? The fintech companies that are in, in the sector have certainly enticed some debate about competition and there can be no doubt that we're lacking competition in the sector more generally. Do I think that fintech is the answer? Uh, no, I don't. I think that whilst there is a school of thought that suggests that it's providing a service where the banks are lacking, it's providing a service to smaller enterprise, what the fintech companies are actually doing is coming in under the guise of disrupting the sector and offering short-term loans to small business for amounts of up to about $250,000 without requiring supporting documentation such that it takes about 10 minutes, as I understand it, to complete a loan application for a fintech. Approvals are given within 24 hours. Documentation is not required. Interest rates are exorbitantly high, between 40 to 60%. There is an issue of transparency with fintech companies at the moment such that they're not actually being clear and transparent in relation to their terms. Um, for example, um, interest rates of 40 to 60% are included in, often included in footnotes, as I understand it, of some of the paperwork. What this does, I think, is has the real potential to delve into the area of predatory lending, poor lending practices. Lending practices are indeed an issue um, being dealt with by the Royal Commission and have been subject to many of the inquiries and views so far to suggest that fintech is the solution, I think is premature and potentially quite dangerous because it could end up that poor lending habits continue to grow in the fintech industry. So one of the things that I wanted to talk about briefly was the interesting point that was made in the interim report, which is that we have existing rules and regulations for banks that are potentially adequate, they just haven't been observed, and they often weren't actually enforced. So it's one thing to suggest policy changes, and it's another thing to ensure that they're actually implemented. So how do you think policymakers can address this challenge of implementation? I think we need to be careful, and Commissioner Hayne has made reference in his report numerous times, we need to be careful when talking about further regulation, so regulating the regulator. So what we don't want to do is impl implement or impose another layer of regulation which is complicated and expensive and time-consuming. Commissioner Hayne has made reference to 
the possibility of simplifying the current regulatory framework. And that's a discussion that I think is important and that should be had. So what would it look like to regulate the regulator or increase accountability, I think, would be a better way to frame it. I think a more sensible discussion would be increasing accountability of ASIC and a worthwhile discussion to have. What would that look like? Well, you would hope that it wouldn't be another parliamentary body who meets with ASIC every six or so months and for a couple of hours and has a discussion. You would hope that it would be perhaps a a more independent body just overseeing in some way, shape or form what it is that ASIC's doing. But again, I think the issue that we really need to be looking at is ASIC's powers, whether or not ASIC is equipped to do its job. Um, And there have been some very important recommendations put forward in some of the inquiries and reviews that have taken place already. Most recently, the 2016 task force, which was the ASIC enforcement review, and that looked very closely at ASIC's powers and ASIC's toolkit. I think that needs some serious consideration. It wasn't the first time that it's been looked at. We had the capability review in 2015 and the inquiry into ASIC's performance in 2014. So I think the recommendations that have come out of those those inquiries and those reports really need to be the focus on ASIC and the regulator and whether or not they're equipped to do their job before we look at imposing another layer of regulation. So do you do you think that ASIC is equipped to do its job? I would like to understand why it is that ASIC has been reluctant to litigate to date. I don't know the answer to that. I believe Commissioner Hain would also like to know the answer to that, so we don't know yet. We need to focus on general and specific deterrence within the industry, understanding why ASIC have conducted themselves the way that they have to date is important in the process of forming a view as to whether or not they actually are equipped. So now that the interim report has been released... What is the next stage for the Commission? Well, the final report in February. There's a lot of political discussion at the moment and suggestions by the Labor Party that the Royal Commission should be extended. But to date, Commissioner Hayne has certainly made no indication that he intends to seek an extension. So for all intents and purposes, we can look forward to receiving his final report in February. I think that that has the potential to be a very valuable tool in the much-needed reform in the sector. Whether or not it is, though, will depend on what the government's attitude is to the final report and what industry's attitude is to the final report. We have every reason to be hopeful, again, the eternal optimist, but we have every reason to be hopeful that the final report will be warmly received, particularly by industry, noting, of course, that the big four banks were instrumental in requesting the Royal Commission. So if we get the final report, it's going to have a series of recommendations, and I suspect they're going to be very thorough, very targeted. I think they're going to be very good. If they're embraced by government and industry, then I think we have every reason to expect significant change in the financial sector going forward, which will be valuable to both the sector and consumers. So in the meantime, are we going to see some changes ahead of the final report? Do you think that we're going to see any improvements following the interim report itself? I think we already are. The banks have certainly been taking steps to change the remuneration packages. Trailing commissions is certainly something that they're already looking at. The big four are looking at ways to segregate their their different arms, so their insurance, their, their different financial products and their retail lending, so that we're already seeing that. We're already seeing change, which, again, is not surprising, considering that the big four banks were very welcoming of the, of the Royal Commission in the first place. The interim report slammed banks for their greed and corporate culture, as we've discussed, and I think a lot of people in the community agree with that and have lost a lot of trust in banks, and this has been a long time coming. 
So what do you think it'll take for the Australian banking sector to restore trust in the community? Trust in the banks and in the financial sector as a whole has been unravelling since the GFC. So I've made reference a number of times to the post-GFC inquiries and reviews and trust and consumer confidence is scattered all through those reports. The big four banks in their letter to the Treasurer, the then Treasurer, Mr Morrison, requesting the Royal Commission referenced the need to restore public faith in the sector. So it's no secret to anybody that trust and and confidence has been an issue. What we can hope is that the Royal Commission doesn't turn into being just another show trial. So the banks who welcomed the Royal Commission have now rolled out and paraded before the Royal Commission a number of individuals of whom they seem to be suggesting are examples of bad apples in the sector. But take the Royal Commission in context as a whole, in conjunction with the inquiries and reviews that we've seen over the last 10 years, and what we've got, I think, is more of a case of bad barrels than bad apples. And those are terms that I must confess I have borrowed from Professor Wheeler, who first published on that. So in order to restore trust and confidence in the sector, to answer your question, I think we need to get to the core of the issue, no pun intended, and deal with a bad barrel situation rather than simply slapping on the wrist some bad apples and and some firing and people resigning. But we need to accept that this is a bad barrel scenario and look at changing the culture. I think the only way to address the issue of trust, as per your question, and consumer confidence is to address the issue of the organisational culture within the financial sector. Do you think that falling trust in banks affects customers' behaviour or interactions with banks? I mean, are people seeking out more financial literacy to be aware of what products they're buying into offer? Are we seeing people engage differently with finance as a result of falling trust? So the problem with that is the the issues that we've got around the financial advisors which is being uncovered again in the Royal Commission and has been touched on previously significantly. It was back in the 1970s when we started deregulating our markets that banks were able to increase the types of products that was available. And that then delved into the expansion of superannuation and it meant that people were able to be responsible for their own superannuation. That then meant that after after the way superannuation was treated tax-wise, that it became more complex and there was an attitude of compulsory saving with super. That's the point when people started seeking out financial advice. They just needed to start seeking out financial advisors and financial planners back then because it all became very complicated. That then has led us to the issue of conflict of interest that we've seen with the banks and their financial planners and they've got all these products, now they need someone to sell the products. This is where we're dealing with the issue of conflict of interest. Um, which we've seen in the Royal Commission and we've seen over the last 10 years. So people have been seeking out financial advice for, for many, many years. Financial literacy, it's a, it's a problem and it's a double-edged sword because on one hand, people are aware that they don't understand it's complicated, they need financial advice, but yet they turn to some of their financial planners who are put into a position of conflict of interest, which has gone to the core of some of the issues that we're seeing in the Royal Commission. So I think it's incumbent upon industry and government to deal with the issue of financial literacy. It's not just a matter of the individual themselves acknowledging that they don't understand and they need some help because, of course, they've been doing that for a long, long time. But it's incumbent now on industry, I think, to increase that literacy for consumers and to be clearer in their disclosures, to be clearer in their explanations and to take the issue of conflict of interest very, very seriously. Given all of the things that we've spoken about, are you optimistic about 
the bank's chances of restoring trust and improving the corporate culture. If we deal with, if if we, if if industry and government deal with the bad apple versus the bad barrel, and treat it properly, treat the Royal Commission with the respect it deserves, accepts that this is a bad barrel situation, then I have every confidence that we're in with a shot of restoring public trust and confidence. Uh, that's all we have time for today, but thank you so much for coming in. I think that we're all really interested to see how this turns out and I hope that you're right and that we see some positive changes in February next year. Thank you so much for coming in. Thanks so much, Edwina. Don't forget that we love to hear any comments or feedback on this podcast or any of our podcasts. You can catch us on Twitter. We're Apps Policy Forum, Facebook, the Asia Pacific Policy Society, or chuck us an email, podcast at policyforum.net. We've got our usual Policy Forum pod coming out this Friday, so don't forget to tune into that. And I'll be back next week with another episode of The Brief. Thank you for listening. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.